book of Daniel. If you're using the white Bibles in front of you, it'll be page 833. We are in Daniel 10. We've been in the book of Daniel for quite some time. As many of you know, uh, making our way through, that's what we do here, is we make our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so now today we're in Daniel chapter 10. Now Daniel is an Old Testament book. It's about God's people going into exile because they disobeyed God and they rebelled against him. It takes place almost 600 years before Jesus came. And today we're in chapter 10. So there's 12 chapters, so we're mostly all the way through the book. And really chapters 10, 11, and 12 are one unit. Chapter 10 is the context. Chapter 11 is going to be the content. So chapter 10, we're going to read, he's had a vision. Chapter 11 is going to really be what that vision is. And chapter 12 is going to be the conclusion, not only of the unit, but really it's a good conclusion of the entire book. If you've been with us, then you know that uh, the first half of Daniel is primarily what we would call historical narrative. It's, it's kind of story form, and it's telling us what happened. And primarily, the second half of the book is what we call apocalyptic literature, meaning it includes visions, it includes uh, symbolic language, often about God's people, and uh, often about their future. And some uh, apocalyptic literature normally has at least three goals. It's... Uh, perseverance that God's people can persevere it's about God's judgment and it's about God's rule and when we're in apocalyptic literature it's kind of like this pulling back the veil that you get to see behind uh, the visible and you get to see a glimpse into the invisible and so that's what we're doing today we're going to see in chapter 10 that there's an unseen spiritual reality that exists around us now, that might seem strange when you say, okay, we're going to talk about things that we don't see. But in reality, we all believe and know about things that we don't see. Uh, there's things that we don't see. We don't see gravity, but we see the effects of gravity and we believe in it. Uh, we don't see emotions, love and joy and those kind of things, although we see the effect of those things. Magnetism, time, radio waves. In fact, I was having a discussion with Robert and one of the other guys here on things that we can't actually see, and they were helping me. Um, the whole universe, we don't see it. It's estimated we only see about 5%, but we believe there's much more than what we actually see, although we've never seen it. Uh, black holes and dark matter, I don't know anything about those, but the internet says we don't see them, so I take their word on it. Um, Wi-Fi, we have Wi-Fi in this room, but yet you don't see it, but it's here. The cloud where all of our information is stored, but nobody sees the cloud. So there's, there's just things that we don't see, but yet we know that they exist. That's what we're going to see here in Daniel. Here in Daniel, we're going to be given a glimpse into a spiritual battle that takes place in the unseen reality around us. And what we're going to see, as one commentator said, is why life is so hard. We're going to see that, that we're not alone in our struggles, and above all, the main point here is that God is establishing his kingdom, and there is no power seen or unseen that can thwart his purposes. That's going to be the main point as we're in Daniel 10, setting the stage for 11 and 12. God is establishing his kingdom, and there is no power seen or unseen that can thwart his purposes. And so uh, one thing we do here is we stand when we read God's word. 
Uh, so I'm going to ask that you stand, and we're going to read chapter 10. This is a little bit one of the smaller chapters in the book of Daniel. When we stand because we believe God's word comes with his full authority. Uh, it's been inspired by his spirit, and so we do so to honor our God and our king. So verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose na who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have, I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken the words to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from him, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. <clears throat> I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, Behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except uh, against these except Michael, your prince. We're going to pray. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. Your word is good, it is perfect and right. And God, as we're in this difficult passage of apocalyptic literature and symbolism, God, give us understanding. Help us to see the beautiful truths of your word. 
Help us to see that you are stronger than all, un, the all seen and unseen powers. Help us to know that your plans cannot be thwarted. And may we know that we're not alone. You have promised to strengthen us and be with us at all times. God, I pray, give us wisdom today. Give us understanding today. May we see the truth and the beauty of your son Jesus in your word today. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, God, I pray that you give them understanding. May the light of your glory shine upon them, and may they see the truths of your word this morning. God, bless the reading and speaking of your word today. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, may be seated. <clears throat> so as you see, this is it's a different kind of language than what we're normally in. It's, it's very symbolic. And so let's just kind of go through a little bit of it. We'll set the stage, and we'll see what we are to understand here. Um, we see that Daniel receives a message in verse 1. It's about 536 B.C., the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Daniel's received a word. In verse 14, we're told it's a vision, and that's what we'll see next week in, verse 11, or in chapter 11. And the content is, it's true. We're told it's true, and it's about great conflict, meaning it's about a war. And again, we'll look at more of that next week. How was the message received? Um, if we see in verse 2, Daniel is fasting, he's mourning, and he's praying, and he's doing it for three weeks. And it took place, what we see in verse 4, during the first month, during when Passover would have been celebrated. They would have a big feast as they celebrate how God brought them out of, the exi- out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so the fact that Daniel is mourning and fasting during this time of great celebration... We know something is happening here. We know that there is some cause for great mourning, but we're not exactly told what it is. Perhaps it's because uh, Cyrus has, in 539, he's allowed many of God's people to go back to Jerusalem so they could rebuild the temple in the city, but not that many actually went. There was many that stayed behind. Perhaps it's because when the exiles returned, and they begin to rebuild the temple. They endured persecution. And so by this time, they've pretty much stopped building the temple. And so he's probably heard about that, which would have been a cause for great mourning. Perhaps it's because, as he knows uh, that now Persia is coming, he already knows from chapters 7 and 8 that we've read already in previous weeks that there is going to be persecution and trouble for God's people. So perhaps he's just mourning and praying about that. Again, we're not exactly told why, but for some reason, he's praying and he's fasting and he's mourning on behalf of God's people. Then we see in verses 5 through 9 that he has a vision and that he sees someone. In verse 5 we read that he looks up and he sees a man. And let me just read verses 5 and 6. It says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of, fi- belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. We have no idea who this is. We're not told. However, there, there's two theories. One, it's an angel. Just an angel that represents the glory of God. And if that's the case, then I believe that there is only one angel throughout chapter 10, if that's the case. But I don't think that's the case. I could be wrong. Um, I think that this is a vision of Christ. 
Um, and the reason that I say that is because in Revelation chapter 1, when John is given a vision of Jesus, he describes him very, very similarly to this. And so under my view, I believe there's two angels. There's this one that looks like Christ, and then there's another one starting in verse 10 that we'll read about. But if I'm wrong, then there's only one angel, and most likely it's not Christ, but it's just one who represents God's glory here. Um, you can take your pick. You can read your commentaries. You can come to your decision there. But let me just read Revelation 1, 13 and 16. As I read this, just think about the similarities on how Jesus is described here and what we have here in Daniel. So we have, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, which we see here. His feet were like burnished bronze, which we see here, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, which we see here. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, which we see here. So again, there's a lot of similarity. That's why I believe this is probably Christ. Again, if I'm wrong, then it's not Christ. And there's just one angel throughout the whole thing. But Daniel responds just like John does in Revelation, when John sees this picture of Jesus, he falls down as though dead. And in verse 8, we see here that Daniel has no strength. In fact, four times in this passage, we're told Daniel has no strength. It's as if the author, Daniel, wants us to see he has no strength. This vision that he has has wiped him out. And then in verse 9, we see he falls down on his face asleep like he's dead, like John does in Revelation. So um, that's what we have here. Then in verse 10, I believe this is the introduction of a second angel. Again, could be wrong. Um, but here he comes, and um, I believe he's different because uh, we see that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him for 21 days. Now, who is this prince of Persia? We're not told, most likely it's some type of demonic force. But if it's Jesus, would he really have needed um, someone to come help him uh, overcome a created and, uh, demonic being? I, I don't think so. And so that's why I think this is probably a different figure than the first one. Um, because no one can withstand Jesus. I mean, not even death could hold Jesus, right? That's the whole point of Christianity. Jesus has come to the cross, he's died, and death could not hold him. He rises three days later. And so I have a couple passages. I want to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Notice how this describes Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so Christ is, is, is held by, by no one. He created all things, visible and invisible. And in fact, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus, he casts out demons. And in Mark chapter 5, we have this story where he comes up to this one guy, and we're told that he has a legion of demons in him, about a thousand demons. You'd think that would be, wow, quite a match. And Jesus simply, with his words, cast them out. They are no match for Jesus. In Revelation, 1, in Revelation 19, we see at the end of the book that there's a day coming where Christ will ride on a horse. 
And he comes before all the enemies. This is, this is, again, symbolic language. He comes before all the enemies, and on his leg is written, could be a tattoo, might not be, but it says, King of kings, Lord of lords, and we're told that a sharp sword will come out of his mouth, and with his words he will destroy all those who have opposed him, and then birds come, and they gorge themselves on the flesh of the enemies. Jesus Christ is strong, infinitely strong. There's no created, um, seen, or unseen, visible, invisible reality that compares to the power of our God. Satan, on his best day, cannot even go one round with Jesus. And so what does this second angel do? Well, we're told three times he touches Daniel. He's strengthening Daniel. He also says twice, verse 11 and verse 19, that Daniel is greatly loved. I just want to remind you, Daniel's like 80 plus years old now. He might be pushing 90. Um, and he's incredibly weak because of this vision. And he's told, you are greatly loved. And so I just want to remind you, I know that we have some older people here. Um, we do not have to be impressive by worldly standards to be greatly loved by God. We don't have to be great physical strength. We don't have to be able to do a lot of things. But even as we age and as we grow weak, here we have Daniel, a man who just loves God, a man who's been saved by God's grace, and we're told he is deeply loved by God. So just know that God's love is not based upon our strength, based upon all the things that we can offer. He loves us because he sent his son Jesus to die for us, that by grace we'd be saved. And so, um, so know that. I hope that comforts you today. So why did the angel come? Verse 11, we're told he was sent by God. See that? For now I've been sent to you. Verse 12, why was he sent? Um, at the end of it, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So why did the angel come? Because Daniel prayed. Do you know that? It's because Daniel prayed that an angel came. God loves to hear our prayers. He loves to answer our prayers. And there's a lot of things that God does, and he waits for us to ask for them. He gives us all things, but there is a condition sometimes. The condition is ask for it. And he says, if you ask, you will receive. And all throughout God's word, we see the power of prayer. We see that God loves prayer. And I'll just give you a couple of examples in Moses in Exodus chapter 32. God's people, remember, after they've gone through uh, the Exodus, they built these idols, and they worshiped them instead of Jesus. And so God says, look, I'm just going to destroy them all. I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses prays, and because of Moses' prayer, God does not destroy the rest of Israel. In Daniel chapter 2, earlier in this book, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, says, I'm going to kill all my wise men because they can't make known to me my dream and its interpretation. So what does Daniel and the guys do? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go to their room, and they pray, and they say, get, and they say, God, we need to know Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we need to know how to interpret it. And because they prayed, God answered and gave them understanding. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you remember this story, um, Israel has not been following God. They've been following Baal which is a false god. So Elijah puts up a challenge. 
And he says, you take 400 of your prophets, meet you up on top of the hill. We'll each have a sacrifice. We'll put it on rock. And we'll pray to our God. Whichever God answers with fire is the real God. It's a good, it's a good deal. And so 400 prophets of Baal, they pray, they dance, they cut themselves, they do everything they can. No fire comes. Elijah sets up an altar, pours water all over it, drenching it with water. Praise to God. In response to the prayer, God sends down fire, which consumes the sacrifice, the water, and the very rocks that were there. That would have been a cool picture to see. Like after that, there's just a black like smear on the ground. Um, James chapter four or John chapter fourteen. Jesus says, "Whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. Whatever you ask in my name, meaning for my purposes, along my will." It doesn't mean, God, I just want a new car. God, I want to win the lottery. But things are in line with the name of Jesus. James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, the reason you don't have is because you didn't ask. And then in chapter, verse 3, he says, the things you ask for, you ask with wrong desires. So he says, you ask for things, but you ask for your glory, not God's glory. And then you want other things which God would love to give you, but you don't even ask for them. So again, we're told that the condition sometimes is, God has said, pray, and I will give it to you, but we must come to him in prayer. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, uh, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. I just want you to know, the main point of this passage is not prayer, but we do just see the power of prayer here. Daniel prays, God answers, and angels sent because he prayed. We can't miss those words. If he didn't pray, we would not have this section in God's word. But he prays, and a vision comes to him, and the angel comes. Prayer is a means in which God accomplishes his plans. Hope you know that. Prayer is a beautiful gift that we have by God, that we get to speak to him, and that he works powerfully with. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And he comes to give a message. In verse 14, he says, He's come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And so again, we're going to see he's talking about chapter 11, which we'll get to next week. But I want to focus on for a few moments, why is the angel delayed? He's delayed 21 days. And we're told in verse 13, the prince of Persia withstood him. Again, most likely some type of demonic being, demonic force. And he's delayed God's messengers. Then we see in verse 13 that Michael, the prince of God's people, comes and helps him. And because Michael comes, this prince is now able to come and make his way to Daniel. Now, surely we can come up with more questions than what this text has to answer. This text is not here to give us everything we want to know about the spiritual realm. So we can come up with a lot of questions. This text isn't going to answer many of them. But it does appear that there are powerful spirits associated with world kingdoms, like Persia, like Greece. And possibly there are powerful spirits associated with all worldly kingdoms and nations and countries and even religious organizations. It's very likely we're surrounded by a spiritual realm of much greater magnitude than we actually think. I don't know if you've thought that way before. Abraham Kuyper, uh, a theologian back in the um, 19th, 20th century, he said, if once the curtain was pulled back 
and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would be seen by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggles drone in its backlash. You ever wonder if that's true? I think that maybe there's a lot more to the world and to the things that have been created than what we just see. The message we need to see here, though, is that Michael, in verse 19, is described as your prince. Your is in plural, the prince to God's people. And he comes, verse 13, to help this angel so he would be able to come to Daniel. And, and soon it appears that this prince of Persia will be defeated. And then in verse 20 we see another prince will come, the prince of Greece. But we know that he also will be defeated because soon Greece will be defeated. And then Rome comes. But what we see is that they're not able to overcome Michael, your prince, the prince of God's people. And in chapter 12, verse 1, we also have another reference to Michael. And there we read, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, will arise. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And so God has a book. It's written the book of the Lamb that was slain. We read about all that in Revelation also. And it has the names of all who will be saved in Christ. And what we're told here is because of what Michael does, every name will be with Christ. Every name written in the book is secured because of the power that's on God's kingdom. However strong these worldly powers look, and however weak we as a church might look, we must understand we have a powerful prince working on our behalf. Isn't that good news? Think about this. Daniel, right now, Israel looks weak. They're in exile, kind of. They've been released, but many of them still live in Persia. The ones that have gone back to Jerusalem, they're still being persecuted. They don't have as much freedom as they would want. They're trying to rebuild the temple. It's not going well. And Daniel knows, man, we only have trials and tribulations coming ahead of us. We look weak. Very, very weak. And if we just look with our, with our eyes at the visible, we might say, Man, what hope do we have? But then we're told that there's also another reality, an even greater reality. There's this invisible reality, this spiritual reality around us. And oh, there we have great hope and great comfort because God has strategically placed his angels like Michael to come and comfort and strengthen the church that we will persevere. That while we might look weak here on earth, there is a spiritual reality that is strengthening and persevering the church. What we want to see is that, what, before we move on, I want to show that what we see here in Daniel, that there's an invisible reality, there's a spiritual reality kind of behind the scenes, is that we see this in other parts of scripture also. And so I just, I just want to talk a little bit about that. Some of these are going to be up on the screen. Colossians 2.15 it talks about when Jesus goes to the cross. So Jesus, physically, he goes to the cross, he's going to be killed, and this is how Paul, the writer of this letter, as he's writing to the church of Coloss, he says, Jesus, he, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what it's talking about is at the cross, when Jesus was killed, he triumphed 
um, over the rulers and authorities in the spiritual powers. That's what Jesus did at that moment. So here we have a physical reality affecting the spiritual reality that when Jesus died, he put to shame the spiritual realities of the rulers and authorities against him. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17 and 19, Jesus has all these disciples. He sends 72 of them out. And they're going to go preach the kingdom. They're going to go tell people about Jesus. And this is what we read. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So here we have the disciples are going out, preaching the gospel, and the heavenly reality, the spiritual reality, when they come back and say, this is what we saw, and Jesus says, I saw something also, and I saw J Satan losing his power, being thrown down to the ground. So here, because of the obedience and the proclamation of the gospel, there's an effect also in the spiritual realm. And this one's not up on the screen, but I think it's helpful. In 1 Peter, um, we read that God's people, the church, are called exiles. When we become uh, believers in Christ, what we're told is that we gain a new citizenship, a citizenship in the kingdom of God. And so in a sense, here on earth, we're exiles. I mean, we, we don't actually belong because we belong to a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. <clears throat> and because of that, we're told that we will endure suffering and persecution here on earth. But, um, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we're told that Satan is like a lion. He's not a lion. He's like a lion attacking. Now, how does he do it? How is it that he actually attacks Christians? Well, throughout the whole letter of 1 Peter, <clears throat> Peter talks about how uh, we'll be mistreated by our spouses, by our friends, by our employers, by our employees, by the very cities that we live in. And so the very means that Satan attacks is through these normal, ordinary, physical things that we are a part of every day. And the point is, our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood. But we have a struggle against a spiritual reality. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Meaning, our fight is not against one another. And this is where we greatly differ from other um, religions. Islam, now, Islam is largely peaceful, but they do have um, certain sects that are much um, not as peaceful. Um, and they look at how they conquer on behalf of their God, Allah. And that's how they demonstrate their love for him. Here... What we see in God's word is our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not to go wage war against one another or against other countries, but our battle is spiritual. And so what does that mean? It means that, um, that one another, we are not our enemies. And when we, uh, when we fight, we get angry with one another, it's not just a physical thing, but there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we're told about this spiritual battle. So I'm just going to give through a few verses just that highlight this spiritual battle. These are not up on the screen. Um, you can mark them down. Uh, 
Krista, our admin, took off this week, so I wasn't <coughs> able to give as detailed of outline uh, in your bulletins, but 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we're told that Satan is the prince of demons, and we're told that he darkens the minds of unbelievers, meaning he tries to, help, to keep people from seeing what we call the light of the glory of God, the gospel, understanding Jesus Christ. In Revelation 12, 9, we're told that Satan is the deceiver of the world. In Matthew 13, 39, we read that Satan plants weeds in this world um, to specifically oppose the working of the gospel. Kind of garden terminology there. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, we read he tries to take people captive to do his will. In Matthew 13, 19, we're told he tries to pluck up the seed of God's word when it is preached so people will not believe it. So one of the reasons that we have in, in the Bible is that when God's word goes forth, and we have some people believe and some people don't. You see what I just did there? <laughs> All the believers, and sorry guys, it just worked out that way. So there's some people who believe, and next week we'll, we'll try to flip-flop it so you guys are the good side. Um, and there's some people that don't. One of the reasons, one is that when the word goes out, Satan goes and he tries to take that word before it can be believed and trusted in. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, we see Satan will try to thwart missionary activity. In Revelation 2.10, we see that he will put Christians in prison. So what we understand is that all of these things are, are, uh, are spiritual, but they have physical counterparts to it. What Satan is doing affects the physical realm. John Piper says, uh, he's a pastor theologian, he says, if this is what Satan does, we can only guess that this is what his princes and servants will do also. And so like here in Daniel, we have a, a prince of Persia, most likely a servant, some type of worker, minion, or whatever it is of Satan, doing very similar things to what it is that Satan would do. And everything is about the, the prevention of the word of God being spread about silencing believers who want to speak about the truth of the gospel. And so what does it mean? So if we kind of step back and we see, okay, there's a spiritual reality and there's a war that's taking place. And, and our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's spiritual. So if we believe that, if we believe God's word is true, then what that means is when you have conflict with your children, the problem is not just that they need to learn better habits or whatever the problem is, but there's a spiritual battle going on. And the sinful, their sinful hearts, the child's sinful hearts, they don't want to worship God. They don't want to love others. They don't want to respect you as, an, as a parent. They don't want to respect your authority. They want to be their own authority. There's a spiritual reality that's happening right there when we have conflict with our children. And there's also a spiritual part of, on the parents as well. When you have a conflict with your spouse, it means that your spouse is not your enemy. Because see, if we believe that flesh and blood is the problem, then it means you are my enemy when you don't agree with me. And I will either oppose you, I will remove you, or I will go around you. Because you become an obstacle at that moment. But if we believe that it's spiritual, this is why we get to persevere with one another and love with one another. We realize that I don't just need to learn better listening skills. I might need to learn better listening skills. But that's not going to solve the problem. The problem is, is that... Most likely in the spouse, one of us or both of us, we don't actually want to love the other more than we want to love ourselves. We want our spouse to recognize our kingdom and what we want. 
than what we want to see. And Satan loves to destroy marriages. We see that all the way back in the garden in Adam and Eve in the very first book of the Bible. Ever since, we see God trying to destroy marriages. Even here, I know there's many people that experience divorce, many people who are right now experiencing the pain of marriage. But hear this, your spouse is not the problem. In fact, under Paul Tripp's words, you are your biggest problem. Because we all need to recognize that it's our hearts and who and what are we serving at this moment. Are we seeking to love God or are we seeking to love ourselves? When we come into our, our marriages, that gets played out all the time. And we so want to just blame the other person. But according to God's word, it's not just flesh and blood. There's a spiritual reality, which means that we need to think differently on how we engage with one another. When we have conflict with our coworker, the problem is not just for better relational skills, but again, there's a spiritual battle. When we see countries and people groups attacking believers and persecuting them, we shouldn't just say, well, we just need better, you know, uh, humanitarian rules and laws. No, th- those would be good. Those are good, and we should pray that those things come into place, but what they really need is the gospel. That's what needs to happen. People need to come and understand the truth of the gospel and that they are forgiven by Jesus Christ if they believe in him. When we look at what uh, might be said about the apathy of Christians here in America, what we might say is, man, maybe it's just because, you know, that there's not a lot of persecution and so we don't have to do as much. Um, Or maybe it's because there's a spiritual reality that that we're being attacked here in america and satan has found a very successful way here in america to attack christians is you don't really need to stand up for yourself just just be comfortable you don't need to speak up about the gospel at work or wherever it is um and now we're in this age of tolerance just be tolerant of everyone we don't need to speak about our religion and and, and become divisive at workplaces there's a much greater spiritual reality that's taking place there. It's not just physical. When someone stops gathering with the church, reading the Bible, praying, it's not just a physical problem. It's not just that they got busy. It's not just that their lives got turned a little bit, but there's a spiritual problem. They're beginning to trust in something other than Christ. Their, their hearts are beginning to be lured away from God's word, from God's people, into pursuing something that they want to pursue for their sake, for the for their own uh, kingdom. Again, we have to realize that what we see, the physical, is to clue us into the spiritual realities that are taking place behind it. Now, I want to pause and just give a word of caution. I am not saying any time that we have a problem that we think there's a demon behind it. And I am not saying the reason you don't get, in lo- don't get along with your in-laws is because uh, you need to go cast a demon out of them. If you try that, it might not help in-law relations, although it might, um, but it might, it most likely, when your cell phone doesn't work, and your computer crashes, or whatever, I am not saying there's just demons in all these things, when your neighbor gets upset because of various things, go lay your hands on him, and I, I don't think that's probably the way that's going to work, um, but John Piper, again, he says this, this is a quote, and I think I have it up here on the screen, take the supernatural seriously. And realize that we are in a warfare that cannot and should not be domesticated by reinterpreting everything in the biblical worldview so that it fits nicely with secular, naturalistic ways of thinking about the world. Be ready for the extraordinary as well as the ordinary ways the evil spirits work. I think that's a good way to look at things. We need to realize that there is a spiritual aspect, but we don't need to like go hunting for things behind everything. 
And here in Daniel, we're simply given a small glimpse into the unseen spiritual battle that seems to coincide with the physical battle here on earth. So do we need to fear these powers? Do we need to be afraid of them? I don't think that we do. And I think at least three reasons. Number one, we have Michael. Verse 21, we see that the angel says, there is none who contends by my side except these, except Michael, your prince. And, and the point is, is he doesn't need anyone else. It doesn't matter who's coming against. He is Michael, your prince, the prince of God's people. So it doesn't matter who the enemy brings. We have Michael. So we're okay. And Michael is mentioned four times all throughout Scripture, here in Daniel 10 and Daniel 12, where we see that he secures all of God's people, that they will be with God. In Jude chapter 9, the second to last book in the Bible, we see that he contends with Satan. In Revelation 12, we see that he leads God's army and he throws Satan to the ground. So Michael is a powerful prince in the army of God who fights in the spiritual realm for God's people. So hear this. We are not alone in our battle. God has strategically placed angels to help strengthen and support and comfort the church. And what does all that look like? We don't 100% know. The Bible is not about all those details, but we are given glimpses into it. But even better than Michael, we have one much, much stronger because Michael is also a created being. We have Jesus who at the cross defeated and disarmed the powers of Satan. Jesus is the guarantee that God's kingdom and all his purposes will be fulfilled and none will be thwarted. What do you think? Jesus has come to establish his kingdom and save a people to inhabit it for all of eternity. The Bible says that we're all born spiritually dead. So that's how we enter into this world. So spiritually dead means that we do not believe in Jesus Christ. But the Bible speaks about when we believe in Jesus, we become spiritually alive. But apart from the grace of God believing in him, the way the Bible describes it, we're spiritually dead, meaning we do not believe in Jesus. So the reality that most defines us is not physical. It's not the color of your skin. It's not whether you're male or female or anything else. According to the Bible, what most defines us is do we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Because it's based upon that knowledge whether we will spend eternity with Christ in the new heavens, new earth, in his kingdom, or we'll be separated for all of eternity in hell under his wrath. That is the identity and the reality that most defines us throughout Scripture. Do we know Christ? And the good news is, is we know that Christ has come and died on a cross so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, no matter race, no matter color, no matter sex, no matter what the past is, whoever comes to him and believes in him will be forgiven and made a citizen of God's kingdom. And, and what's good news is in Romans 8, Romans 8, 38 and 39, this is what Paul says about how secure we are now when we believe in Jesus. He says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So is there any spiritual power that can separate us from God? Is there any spiritual power? This is where we have our interactive time. Is there any spiritual power? No. So do we need to be afraid? No. Now that doesn't mean we don't, like, don't care. It doesn't mean we're flipping about it. But I don't need to fear the one who can't actually hurt me. 
Because let's say he even kills me. Let's say he does, as we read. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. He does have the power to throw some into prison. Let's say that happens. Let's say that we get killed. But he can't separate us from the love of God. So whether we are alive here on earth or whether we have died, we will be with Christ. There is nothing he can do to change that reality. That is the good news of Scripture. Number three, another reason we don't need to be afraid is we've been given the armor of God. And just think about it. The armor of God. Whose armor is it? Isn't that good news? It's not your armor. It's not my armor. Like, could you imagine? The good news is you have Nick's armor. That just wouldn't comfort you the same, would it? It's okay. It won it. I'm not offended. I wouldn't want it. We have God's armor. This is what it says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Do you see this again? Our battle's not against one another. Anytime you're getting mad at someone, now that doesn't mean they didn't do something wrong. But anytime we start getting mad and angry, we lose our patience, we need to realize there's a spiritual thing that's happening here also. But against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me just point out a couple things. Once again, reminded that our battle's not against flesh and blood. This doesn't mean we need to go looking for evil spirits. I don't, I don't think this is what it's all about. We need to engage spirits. But we need to realize that the problems that come against the church and us individually are primarily spiritual. This is why when you're in the Bible and you read about prayers, just look at every prayer in the New Testament. You know what you don't read? God, give me a good day. God, take away pain and suffering. God, help me to make a friend today. Like, I'm not saying those are necessarily bad, but we don't read anything like that. The prayers we read are, God, um, they're about unity. They're about peace. They're about overcoming sins. They're about preventing division. They're about standing firm in trials and suffering. The prayers are all about how we respond spiritually to the physical things around us. That's what the prayers are about in God's word all about how do we respond spiritually so what do we do we stand strong in his strength so what does that mean if we if we leave here today okay we stand strong in his strength how do we do that number one it's it's through god's word because as you go through that ephesians 6 passage it starts talking about the helmet of salvation the breastplate of righteousness the shoes of peace the sword um, or the belt of truth the sword which is the word of god all of these things we read about in God's word, and they're all true for us because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. So when we talk about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, we're understanding these are spiritual realities that are now true for us because of what Jesus has done for us. In Ephesians 6.18, we see that we're to pray. We're to know God's word, and we're to pray. These are how we stand firm. Know God's word and pray. Prayer accomplishes God's will. It's a means in which we engage in the spiritual battle. It's how we apply God's word to our lives. In fact, prayer is a means in which we experience God's strength and comfort. So if we go back to Daniel, Daniel's fasting and he's mourning and he's praying, right? For, for 21 days. In verse 11, 
we read, your words have been heard. Verse 19, we read, and he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So because of prayer, he's now had an angelic vision come to him. He's not only comforted him, given him peace, but strengthened him as well. So if we're going to experience God's strength, God's peace, and God's patience, it's all through his word and prayer because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So hear this. God is building, God is building and establishing a kingdom upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose again that that kingdom would be established. And now as the gospel goes out, it's so that people would come and believe in it and inhabit this for all of eternity. And we know that his plans will not be thwarted. We know that God will accomplish his every purpose. And the proof of that is his son, Jesus Christ. And now we can stand firm in his word and in prayer. So I'm going to pray now. And I'm going to ask the, the men to come forward and help pass out communion. Our Father, I, we thank you for your word. I thank you that we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And that, Father, you have fought the greatest battle through your son, Jesus Christ, by sending him to the cross, that he would die so that we could be forgiven, be made spiritually alive, be given a spiritual inheritance, one that will last for all of eternity. And God, I pray that everyone here knows that, has trusted in you. God, I pray that we be made aware, just through your word today, that there is more than what we see. That there is a spiritual reality behind the physical. God, help us to understand your word, that we would see this, that we would understand it, that we would know how to pray for our spouses, for our children, for our church, for other believers in other parts of the world, for ourselves, because of recognizing these spiritual battles that are taking place. And God, I pray that none of us would be afraid, none of us would be scared, none of us would have a spirit of fear because of this, but that we would know you are stronger. You have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross, that we would have great confidence. If we have believed in you, we are forgiven, and we are secure in you. So whether we live, whether we die, we are with you. God, I pray we have that confidence. I pray if, if somebody here doesn't have that confidence today, that whether they live or die, that their, your grace is upon them and that you are with them, that they would trust in you today. Father, we love you. Be with us now as we, as we share in communion. In your name, Jesus.